Greetings and welcome to the Upward Call at White's Run Baptist Church. My name is Eric Newcomer. I'll be your preacher today, bringing you the Word of God from Philippians chapter 1. Today we have the great opportunity to kind of peer inside the mind of Paul as the Holy Spirit inspired him to write a letter, a personal letter to the church at Philippi. And we're taking part in taking a look at that letter through a series called The Upward Call, which is based upon something Paul says near the middle of this letter, uh, that he is on this upward call of Christ, that he's responding to this, that he strives toward being Christ-like and following Christ in uh, faithfulness in every way. And so what we're going to take a look at today is in chapter 1, we're going to see... Uh, as we have, have seen in previous ones, that Paul is in prison. We're going to see his perspective on that and how he views what has happened to him and the observations that he has made based upon it. And what we're going to find out is this. We're going to find that Paul had this great expectation, as indeed we all should, that God is working for salvation in his people in every circumstance. And he's doing it through advancing the gospel, through growing his people spiritually, and ultimately through bringing them home to him. And so this is a powerful look at the threefold idea of our salvation. Let's read the text and then we'll get into the details and see what we can learn about it. Uh, beginning in Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12, here's what it says. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For it, to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain." if I am to live in the flesh. That means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. Father God, it's our sincere desire to adopt this mindset that your servant Paul had. Help us to see you even in our difficult circumstances, to see you at work, 
Help us to know how it is that you work and how we can foster that work in others to bring forth a good fruit, the fruit of righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Lord, let us know more today. Let us understand, be with us, encourage us and strengthen us and build us up for the work of your ministry. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a fascinating text, as you can tell, he's writing from prison and yet he constantly repeats the idea that he's rejoicing in what's going on. And we're going to see that Paul God sees God at work in any circumstance. And that's a great expectation that he has. So to understand this, we first need to see the threefold nature of our own salvation. And for your benefit, I'll uh, summarize them here. There, in the Bible, as we study the New Testament and we study the word salvation or the verb to be saved, here's what it yields. It yields three different aspects of our salvation. Firstly, it yields an aspect of uh, being passed. In other words, that we have been saved. And that would be illustrated in something like Ephesians 5, 8, which says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of the light. In other words, we were darkness, but now we're light. We went from being dead to being alive. And indeed, we have been saved. And in Ephesians, that was Ephesians 5, 8. In Ephesians 2, 8, it says this. It says, for grace you have been saved through faith. And so there's the tense, the past tense, you have been saved. And this is all throughout the New Testament, the idea that this is accomplished. Next, there's the present idea of our salvation, and that is that we are in a process of being saved. And we're going to see that illustrated in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 2 and 3. Here's what Peter says. He says, like newborn infants long for the spiritual milk. So he's talking about growth here in Christ. He says that by it you may grow up into salvation. So here's a situation which we're clearly, by so many verses, talked about as already saved. But now Peter's saying you're going to long for the pure spiritual milk. He's talking about spiritual growth in the Word of God and so that we will grow up into salvation. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so there's that present continuous idea of our salvation. And then thirdly is the uh, future idea, the fact that we will be saved. And we understand this to occur either at our death or the return of Jesus Christ, whichever comes first. Either one will be glorious for us. Here's what Paul says. I used a quote from Paul for this one because we're going to touch on the fact that he saw his imprisonment as possibly ending in death, which ultimately one of his imprisonments did. The last one, obviously. And here's what he says in 2 Timothy, which is, as far as we can tell, the very last of his letters that we have and here's what he says to Timothy. He says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so here the Lord, or the word salvation is here, where it says, The Lord will rescue me. That is the same word that we see elsewhere as to be saved, uh, the word salvation. And so he says, I'm going to be rescued from every evil deed. And you say, well, wait a minute. Wasn't Paul martyred? God didn't rescue him from that evil deed. Oh, yes, he did. Because 
through that evil deed, he brought him home. And so indeed, he really was rescued. So we have threefold idea of salvation in Jesus Christ, that there was a work that was accomplished, that we came into realization when we repented of it and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. In that moment, we were saved. And we are as such now walking in Christ, progressing in the gospel and the truth and growing in our knowledge of him and we are being saved. And then ultimately one day the work will be finished upon our death or upon the return of Jesus Christ. We will be changed to finally be completely conformed to his image. We will be saved. Now, the reason why it seems like a digression, but what we're going to see is this is actually what unfolds in what Paul speaks about here. Let's give a little background first, because we have to understand what it is that happened to Paul. Because in Philippians 1.12, he begins the whole thing by talking about what has happened to him. See, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So he's speaking in terms of his past, what had happened to him. So the question is, what had happened to Paul? Well, we see the answers to that in the background to this. What occurs is he first sees the church at Philippi around Philippians, uh, or in Acts chapter 16. And he writes this letter from prison, which actually takes place after the book of Acts sometime, um, chapter 28 or beyond. And what happened to him was accounted in Acts chapters 21 to 27. And here's what it looked like in a very summary form, but I encourage you to read it because it's a terribly exciting story and it's a, it's a very good read. But he was illegally arrested in Jerusalem, there being falsely accused by some of the Jews. And he was uh, basically ensnared by them and accused of desecrating the temple by taking a Gentile into it, falsely accused. Uh, we could definitely add there. And in this, uh, the Romans even mistook him momentarily for a wanted man. And there were these political and religious plots by the Jews against him, even to take his life. So knowing that the threat had been made to take his life, the authorities tipped off by a relative of Paul who had heard about this plot to kill him. They took Paul from Jerusalem and put him at what's called Caesarea Maritima. That is uh, Caesarea by the sea, where the governor of the area resided. And so he's there um, at with uh, Felix the governor, and he's awaiting a trial. A few days pass, the Jews send some people. They have a bunch of charges, but it really doesn't amount to much. And it ends up being a couple years before his case is really even heard. So a couple years pass, Felix is succeeded by Governor Festus. Festus hears these charges again. He he sees he meets some of the people in Jerusalem who ask about Paul. So a couple years go by, they're still thinking about Paul. They're still mad about Paul. And he's like, well, why don't you come down? We'll talk about these things. So they come down to Caesarea and they want to bring Paul back to Jerusalem for a trial. Paul knew that that was a trap. He knew that they would try to kill him when they brought him back to Jerusalem because they had no real case against him. They just hated him and wanted to kill him. And so what he does is the one thing he could do as a Roman citizen, he appeals to Caesar's court. In other words, he says, I demand for this to be heard in Caesar's court. That means he's going to Rome. 
And the fascinating thing about it is Paul had always imagined himself going to Rome and preaching the gospel, but I imagine it wasn't until this moment that he realized uh, Rome's actually going to pay for me to go aboard prison ship or as a prisoner upon a ship. And so he gets his ticket to Rome. They take him to Rome, but on the way, it was a very long and hard journey, which included a shipwreck, a total loss of the ship they were on, but none of the crew uh, of the ship was lost. And they have this great shipwreck near a place called Malta, and they end up spending a few months on the island of Malta, during which time Paul is bitten by a deadly snake, but it doesn't kill him. And of course, Paul has the opportunity to spread the gospel uh, on the island of Malta. And then finally, they end up getting to Rome. So those would appear to be wasted years. We would say, here's this great apostle Paul. He's done so much. He's been around the world. He's been on all these missionary journeys, planning all these churches, and his ministry comes to a screeching halt for two years as he's awaiting trial because of bureaucracy and because of phony charges. But Paul doesn't see it that way. He doesn't see these as wasted years, and we know from history they're not. He wrote many letters. He could have visitors. He could send, you know, send letters out and commands and things like that. The churches continued to grow. Others continued to be discipled by Paul and grown by Paul, and so he was able to labor even in prison. But let's look at the scripture here. How does this serve to advance the gospel? He says it's uh, advanced the gospel. Well, first of all, it brought him in contact with Caesar's household. Notice in verse 13 here, it says, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And so the whole imperial guard knows about this. Now, these are the guards that are most intimately associated with the ruling of the emperor. And Emperor Nero was the emperor at the time, and he was a wicked man, an awful emperor. But the interesting thing is this gospel of Paul's even touches Emperor Nero's household. When Paul signs off the letter, look what he says in verse 22. This is chapter 4, verse 22 of the letter. He says, all the saints greet you, that is the recipients, especially those of Caesar's household. So this is a remarkable thing that indeed it had advanced the gospel right into Caesar's own household. Look what the historian Jerome says about this. He says, being by the emperor cast into prison, Paul became more known to his family, that is the emperor's family, and turned the house of Christ persecutor into a church. And so the cause of Christ was going forward all of this time while he's in prison. And Paul saw it and Paul knew it. And that was a great encouragement to him because he understood that it was going to go on without him. Now, the question remains, how exactly did this uh, occur? How was this helpful to the cause of Christ? Well, we see according to verse 14 in chapter 1 that it gave confidence to some of the brothers. And if you think about this, if one of you gets thrown in prison for preaching the gospel, what it does is it kind of gives some credibility to the seriousness of the gospel and its message because Paul probably could have recanted, apologized, whatever. He maybe could have made things right and gotten out of this, but he didn't. He held to what he believed. He kept on forward and he kept encouraged about it. He did not complain. He just grabbed the opportunity to do the best that he could in the moment. And so 
the uh, this gave confidence and boldness to some of these others. They were more bold now to speak the word without fear, encouraged by what has happened to Paul. It's interesting how that has happened. So not only did it further the gospel, bring them in contact with Caesar's household, and, and secondly, inspire some of the brothers, but look, it actually stirred up opposition. If we look at verse 15 right there, he says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. So some were out there preaching it uh, out of envy and rivalry. These were people that were maybe didn't like Paul, maybe were rivals of Paul in some way. And these are sinful ambitions. I have no doubt about that. But we've seen that the sinful ambitions of man motivates man to do certain things, but God can work with that. He can, he can bring good out of it. Remember the story of Joseph where his brothers had sold him into slavery and all the difficulty he went through in Egypt and everything else. And, uh, but ultimately he says, what you, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And here we see it in the life of Paul, what these people intended for evil, preaching out of these bad motives, uh, was actually furthering the cause of Christ because it was continuing the name. You realize even when complaints about Christianity come and Christianity receives persecution and rejection by people, uh, it actually serves the cause because it brings the idea into the light. And very often the opposition is shown for what they are. And so here we have uh, an interesting way in which this actually served. He says they proclaim Christ out of selfish, selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking. And his rejoicing is this in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. And so he rejoices in the gospel bringing you know, how this advanced the gospel. But now another question remains, how did this bring Paul salvation? Because I want to point out a word here that's that's very important here. He says in verse 19 here, he says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Well, that is the word salvation. And we've seen that word appear several times in the verses we've looked at today. Here, it's translated as deliverance because, you know, the, the translators didn't want you to get the impression that being put in prison caused you to be saved <laughs> because clearly that's not the gospel truth. The gospel truth is that you are saved by grace, by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But what he means here is deliverance, and he means it twofold. He means it in spiritual growth or in death. I want to show you how that unfolds here. He's able to exercise his great expectation and hope and courage, as he says in verse 20. Um, and in verse 22, he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And so in the one sense, he is talking about this situation resulting in the salvation of the second kind that we looked at, this present continuous, growing in Christ, that he is being saved and further conformed to the image of Christ. And one of the ways in which we do that is we serve him. 
and we take part, we actually act like Jesus Christ when we serve him because we are serving his priorities, his purposes. We are continuing the mission for which he came. Not that we make atonement for sin, but that we announce what has been done. And this is powerfully important. So in all this, he's rejoicing because he's thinking this through. He's exercising his discernment in Christ. And he's determining the will of God prayerfully and thoughtfully. When we as Christians engage with God to understand our situation, to understand what's going on with the gospel, or to understand his word, when we seek his will and when we seek his understanding, we are growing. We are being saved in the sense that we are being further conformed to the image of Christ through that process. But even more than this, Paul's attitude about this is revealed some in Philippians 3, which we'll talk about a great deal more when we get there. He says in Philippians 3, 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He saw as the supreme privilege of being a Christian is knowing Christ. It's not in any kind of temporal blessing we may get from it. It's not in the fact that we're even going to go to heaven. It is that I can know Christ. I can know him right now. It's not the streets of gold he's enamored with. It's the presence of Jesus Christ he's interested in. He goes on, he says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So in other words, what Paul is saying is, if I could lose all earthly benefits and all my freedom and all my material possessions and all these things, but have Christ, it would be worth it. And this is a powerfully important truth for us to understand. We want to see what we have, most of all, is in Jesus Christ. And he strives forward for what? knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. He says that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He sees in Christ two great movements, the the suffering and death and the resurrection of Christ. And he sees our lives as being conformed to the image of Christ in as much as we partake in suffering for Christ, We are following him. We're following him to the cross, following him through the suffering. But what comes after the suffering? The resurrection, always the resurrection. And that is what he looks forward to, is following Christ toward this resurrection. His eye is on that prize. He strives forward to it. Paul saw that suffering for the sake of Christ was actually a part of Christ's own suffering. Look what he says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. He also wrote this letter from prison, and he writes some of the similar things in it. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. In other words, Paul saw that Christ's suffering was not done at death. Now, Christ Christ fully paid the price for sins. The suffering that was his atonement, that was accomplished, that is done. As he hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. But yet there's more suffering for Christ to undergo. 
and that is the suffering of his church. And Paul sees this as partaking with him in this suffering side by side with his Lord and Savior. So these are powerfully important observations to understand that what Paul saw in his present affliction and in his difficulties, he saw deliverance through personal spiritual growth. Now, he also saw deliverance quite obviously in his death. He says, I know through your prayers, help that Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And he was certain that he would be delivered from this imprisonment. And indeed, he was. This was not Paul's last imprisonment. This was not the one that ended in death. The book of Acts doesn't account all this, but we can put it together from the letters and the information that Paul has. He was released for a little while, but then he ends up back here in Rome in prison again when he is finally, which finally results in his death. Now, in, uh, in his second imprisonment, one of the letters he wrote that we have is 2 Timothy, and there he accounts the absolute certainty of his martyrdom. That's why we quoted from it earlier. But I want you to see that Paul saw this twofold deliverance that I'm, as I'm showing it to you today. Through prayers in the Spirit, deliverance, he has in verse 19. And in verse 20, he says uh, that I will not be ashamed. That's his expectation. That's his hope that I won't be ashamed. And he goes on to say, but will have full courage now as always. Christ will be honored in my body. And look at this, whether by life or by death. And so he's saying, I'm going to honor Christ by life or by death. That's deliverance. He can be delivered unto life. He can be delivered unto death. He saw either one as an option. If he died, he died for the cause of Christ. And he says, you know, if I'm to live in the flesh, that's great. That means fruitful labor, but I can't tell which I should choose. He says in verse 23, my desire is to part and be with Christ for that is far better. And so he's speaking of deliverance either by his death or by spiritual growth and continued fruitful labor with the people of Philippi. And so you know, he ultimately gets both. He gets the death and the second imprisonment. He gets fruitful labor until then. And so he does indeed have deliverance. And here's my point. And what I really want you to, to bring you to understand is this. I want you to understand that, that Paul saw salvation, deliverance, in whatever path lie ahead for him. Do you see he saw the benefit of if I go on living, it's going to be great benefit for you and for me. But if I die, it's going to be the ultimate benefit for me. And so he was able to see that ahead. And this is what I hope we can adopt. Today's big idea is this, that believers should expect God to be working salvation for his people in every circumstance through advancing the gospel, through growing them spiritually and through bringing them home. And you're going to see this in life as you really see God at work in his people. He's doing those three things all the time. He's bringing them to faith. He's growing them in the faith. And then he's taking them home where their faith becomes sight. This is God and he's always working for you and I uh, for our good and for his great glory. And so I want you to see that the the first lesson I want us to get from this is this. Um, I want us to adopt his 
mindset. I want us to adopt this mindset of Paul that down every path there is salvation for believers. Why? Because that will help us to endure anything that happens, any difficulty that comes in life. We won't be focused on the circumstances. We won't be all, woe is me about what is happening and where is God when I'm having great difficulty. No, we will be focused on what God is doing and how he's going to do it. And we will be amazed. This is not just positive thinking here. Paul truly sees this happening. He sees that the gospel is preached either way, whether these people like him or not, because he knows how God's work, God works. Paul sees deliverance is down every path because it is. He's either going to have fruitful labor and increase in his knowledge of God, or he's going to go home to be with him. Paul sees deliverance down every path. So it's not just positive thinking. It's not just trying to look on the bright side of things. It's not just making lemonade out of lemons. This is truly seeing this lemonade down every path. And that is God's intention from the beginning. So there's much to be said about having the right mindset. But the second thing I want us to do is I want us to stop waiting for the right situation in order to spread the gospel because God isn't waiting for the right situation, because for God, any situation is the right situation to spread the gospel. We need to stop trying to make the perfect circumstances. We need to stop waiting for the right time or the right place or the right set of people. We need to stop bemoaning our circumstances, and we need to look around and labor where we are. We need to stop trying to be the perfect Christian. Not that we shouldn't strive to be perfected in Christ. We should, but we should stop waiting to be good enough to share the gospel, good enough to be a part of what's going on in church, good enough to build a church, having a perfect enough church to spread the gospel. None of those things will happen to our satisfaction. They are but excuses. An excuse has a skin of truth, but is stuffed with a lie. We need to stop waiting to assemble the right set of resources or the perfect team or assemble the perfect statement of faith or the perfect polity in our church. We need to stop trying to have the perfect answers for every circumstance and every hypothetical scenario. We just need to be about the work. And to do that, we start looking for how God is working around us. First of all, start praying for and with those people around you. Start sharing the gospel with those immediately at hand. Start, start with what we know how to do would be a good place to go. We ought to step out in faith that God can use us right where we are and in our very own circumstances, regardless of how hopeless those circumstances might seem. And then we can have this mindset that Paul had and start seeing possibilities in every circumstances. We can start asking questions like, how can God be glorified in my circumstances? How can God be glorified by my deliverance, by my healing? How can God be glorified by my sickness or my failure? How can God be glorified in my success or in my stumbling? How can God be glorified in my life 
How can God be glorified in my death? How can God be glorified in my peace? How can God show grace under pressure through me? Do you, do you see what we're saying here? Is in every circumstance, look for it. Because it was there with Paul in the worst of all you know, circumstances. There it was happening. There it was the gospel was going forth and things were progressing. And we need to look for that in our own circumstances, no matter how difficult they may seem to be. And why can we do that? Because there is salvation down every path for you. Remember what Paul said at the beginning of his letter to the Philippians. He said, I am confident that he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. And we can be confident of the same, that if God has begun to work in us, he is going to bring it to completion, is going to happen by the eternal decree of God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, he laid a path of salvation out for you to walk, good works for you to walk in, and good impact for you to have on those around you. And so join him in his gospel work as he calls people to himself, as he perfects them in Christ, as he calls them home to reward and inheritance. To illustrate this, I want to give you an example from my own life. Now, we had the best example from Paul's life. But in my own life, before even coming to Christ, before he called me to himself and, and I repented of my sins and trusted in him, before all that happened, God was already working in my wife and I to call us into his service. He began to expose us to motivational speakers and positive books and things like that. And some of the names you might recognize and some you wouldn't. Norman Vincent Peale, Zig Ziglar, Les Brown, Dennis Waitley, uh, all these things. The ideas of the power of positive thinking, the ideas of you know, the... Uh, uh, self-talk and things like that and confidence and, and building yourself up. And we found those things to be exceedingly helpful, but they were always lacking something. They never quite accomplished in us what what they had promised. And, and maybe they did in other people, but but it certainly didn't in me. Those books can be very helpful and those motivational speakers can be very helpful, but they fall short. The reason why they're helpful is they contain kernels of truth in them. They contain things that are right about are the reality that we live in. In other words, they touch on some of the truth of God. But they fall short in that they don't preach the gospel of redemption in Jesus Christ. And we can do a great deal outside the gospel even of reformatting our brains. But if we don't have the gospel and we're not saved in Jesus Christ, all we're doing is putting layer upon layer of different kinds of mentality and thinking, brainwashing ourselves essentially, covering ourselves up, covering over our conscience. And our makeup is for certain principles to work out in our lives, to align with God and things like that. But the gospel is what truly brings us into alignment with God, what truly gives us ultimate peace and ultimate purpose. And so this, we, we understand that this is why motivational materials and even other religions can offer some benefit. It's because they partially align in some way with the truth. 
They accord with something inside of us, and they accord with something that dictates how reality here works because of the principles of God. But without the gospel, they will ultimately fall short. You might build yourself a better life, but you will not build eternal life. Eternal life only comes by grace through Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have the ultimate motivation. We have salvation in Him. And we have the Spirit of God, the ultimate motivator, indwelling us. And we have the greatest cause, not just personal gain or wealth or happiness or contentment, but eternal inheritance in Jesus Christ, spiritual riches in Christ, and joy so great that we could write about it from a prison cell. God is the ultimate possibility thinker. His word will accomplish his maximum purposes for his people. The upward call is to know Christ and to know him is to love him, to obey his commands, to therefore join him in his work. And the call today is to join him in his work. Take the next step. Repent and trust in Jesus Christ if you've not done so already. Join with a local body of believers that you can be involved on the front lines of ministry where God is working. He is working through the local church. You must be involved with the local church. And join with that local church. If you haven't obediently been baptized yet, do so. Find a local church. Be involved talk with them about baptism, join into their congregation through the rite of baptism, and you indeed will be greatly blessed. Find the will of God, find where it is he's working, and join him at it. Let's pray. Father God, this day we pray really for three things. We pray first of all that you would give us this mindset of of Paul's, this mindset that we see you and your salvation down every path for ourselves and all the other believers. First, give us that mindset. Secondly, Lord, give us confidence and motivation and boldness to look to the example for Paul. And, and finally, Lord, help us to have our eyes opened to the possibilities around us. Show us where you're at work and give us the boldness and confidence to join you in it. Lord, we praise you this day for what you did uh, through your great apostle. Your spirit worked in him this attitude of joy, even in the midst of imprisonment. Lord, you have shown us that what he says indeed is true, that in our lives and serving you and following you, you indeed empowers to do all things through Christ. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thank you for joining me today, and I hope it's been a blessing to you. I encourage you to contact us. You can find us at whitesrun.org, and you can email us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. Those emails will be answered personally, and you'll be uh, given whatever kind of information you need. We can help you find a church near you that believes similarly to us. We can uh, also help you in your faith walk and, and things like that. And so the uh, options are, are endless. If you just want to tell us how we're doing, we would really appreciate that too. So find out more about us at whitesrun.org. Visit or email us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com or visit us here on the outskirts of 
beautiful Carrollton, Kentucky. We thank you and we praise God for you in Jesus' name.